0: Uh, always the real thing. You got the right one, baby. Uh-huh. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail, Ring! where we make seven up yours. <laughs> we do. A lot
0: of soda uh, taglines from... Ages past. Do the do, damn it. I, I was really entertained when, I think it was specifically the diet version of Pepsi. Diet Pepsi. When their tagline was just, uh-huh. <laughs> it was just like a grunting noise. That was it. Like, buy Pepsi. Uh-huh. It's like that, That's like a bunch of ad executives fell asleep at a table. And it's like four in the morning and they just want to go home. So somebody just gets poked with a stick. What should the slogan be? Just tell me. Uh-huh. Fine, fine. We'll
1: submit that. And it just sort of went through the machine. I was, uh, I was talking to my wife and partner, Michelle, mm. and uh, we were talking about how and we we're talking about imposter syndrome. Mm. And do you think like Coca-Cola ever gets imposter syndrome? Like, we're, like, we're
0: not the greatest, you guys.
1: Like, have you ever had an RC? You ever had an R.C. code? It's so much better, you guys. <laughs> uh, well,
0: I, I'm such I a know, poser. I know when you work for like a, a super mega corporate corporation like that, like Coke or McDonald's or Disney or whatever, they, they like in, in press or when interacting with people outside the company, you kind of have to be a cheerleader. I think you even have to sign papers to that effect. Yep. Like yep. This is the greatest company. You can't like really criticize the company. Yeah, I think but you know, to a degree, yeah. I know behind closed doors, there are like a few malcontents. They're just like, oh, this is coke sucks man it's so
1: bad well you see that a lot in like movie junkets where everyone's got to be nice about the movie before it comes out like yeah. I, there's like a line there's like a point where you cross where you're finally allowed to talk about what actually happened yeah. in the movie like, and there's a statute of limitations good. or something i think and... it's like i think it's like literally like the week after it comes out you're allowed to say it's a piece of shit yeah but you gotta be nice before then mm-hmm. because you're under contract you agreed mm-hmm. to do publicity for this much time uh-huh Um, Anyway, my name is William DeBiani. by the way. (laughs) My Um, name is Whitney Seibold. Yeah, I'm a film critic for The Wrap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibs.
0: My name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN. I write for TV Guide. That's so cool, Just just got my first piece went up yesterday. It was... uh, very canceled too soon related. In fact, I wrote an article about House of Buggin, yeah. the very short-lived sketch comedy show from John Leguizamo that aired for eleven episodes in 1995.
1: I barely remember that. At
0: we all. we cover it on Cancel too soon, but it's not available. <sighs> I watched it back in the day, and there are like a bunch of clips online, but there are no like full episodes or, oh. or a whole series
1: anywhere. We should uh, we should contact John Leguizamo. Maybe he's got it. Like on DVD somewhere, like a VHS.
0: If if there are any celebrities you'd be open to sharing, I think John Leguizamo would be one of them. Yeah. Although he's also very busy. He works all the time. Yeah, well, as well he should. He also lives in New York. He's not going to, you know.
1: He travels a lot, doesn't he? He just did a show in LA. I guess so. We could so. probably he's... still run and get him right now. Just like, John! <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Leguizamo, we loved you in the past! Hey! Um... hey. <laughs> okay. And he turned back and said, I
0: didn't love me in the past, guys.
1: <laughs> um... Yeah, anyway, this is We've Got Mail, mm. and uh, yeah, every week on We've Got Mail, we read your emails. We, you email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and uh, we dedicate this time to you. You get to decide what we talk about, what questions we answer, what mm. types of movies you recommend. You can uh, give us debate topics, take issue with things we said on the podcasts, um, whatever you want. Yeah, really. Get, T- talk about nonsense. Whatever. It's fine, Yeah, too. it
0: can be frivolous. It can be serious. We did, uh, we've done a few letters episodes where we talk about, like, mental health and depression and, you know, kind of heady topics. But that's not just what we do.
1: We also talk about dumb movie subtitles and yeah. all kinds of stuff. So, <laughs> uh, the sky's the limit. We can't promise we'll read every single letter because we get a lot of them, but we're trying. So, mm-hmm. uh, by all means, email us. Letters at net And, um... Every week we're gonna to try to tackle uh, part of our big backlog, but also some of our most recent letters yeah. as well, well so that we stay current.
0: Kind of, kind of go back and forth. So we if if you've been waiting for a letter to be read, maybe we'll still read it. Yeah, don't <laughs> don't
1: give up on us. We're still trying. So yeah. why don't you read a recent letter for us? Uh, okay,
0: a recent letter. Well I had an older one, I'll queue oh, up. Whitney. But here we go. Fine, fine. Um, let's see here. Um this comes from Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Hello, William Whitney. I have adored Cancel Too Soon since I found it uh, through the wonderful chain of podcast guest spots, and I uh, wish you'd be uh, and and wish you the best on your unified podcast feed. Well, I thank you very much. Thank you. My question for you is: Have you ever run across a show on Cancel Too Soon and tried to review it, and it turns out to be such a bland nothing that you can't review it? <laughs> Something like the infamous Wheel of Time pilot comes to mind. Uh, please keep up the great work you do, and thanks for everything you do. Sincerely, Benjamin Curley. I don't uh, think... hashtag. Please, keep <laughs> it, keep it one hundred. Put Black Savage. Keep the hundred lives of Black Jack Savage on Disney Plus.
1: That's right. Mm. For for those who don't remember, or those who might be new to the podcast or the feed, uh, the week Trump was inaugurated, Whitney and I did an episode of Cancel Too Soon where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. Mm-hmm. We reviewed a failed Disney television series called The 100 Lives of Black Jack Savage, in which a protagonist based explicitly on Donald Trump buys a haunted mansion in the Caribbean <laughs> and teams up with the ghost of a black pirate to solve mysteries using a sci-fi superboat. The, and the island is owned by an evil dictator. Who is also funny and Donald Trump's best friend. Mm. Um
0: <laughs> a little a little prescient. I think that's exactly what's happening.
1: It's uh, at, the, at the end of the pilot uh Trump saves the day by dumping toxic waste into the ocean. That's right. The toxic waste <laughs> saves the day by dumping it. Into Anyway, uh, it's it was an, it's a really amazing show that Disney has completely swept under the rug. And they were pushing hard
0: because uh, it was was it Eisner or um uh, no, yeah. was
1: o, or was it Ovis? No, it was Eisner. Michael Eisner, Michael Eisner like, Eisner. like introduced, introduced episodes, talking like about the, how it's the next big thing. Like for the first Disney. three
0: or four episodes, like this is the the biggest thing that Disney has ever done. It's really interesting. Like he's there on camera. Yeah, here's the boat that they use on the show, and I can't can't wait for you to get hooked on this show. It's the weirdest thing,
1: man. And I guarantee you, it's one of the things that Disney will never put on Disney+. Plus. No. It's just never going to be there. If they do, mm. I will be astonished, and I will applaud them. <laughs> I will happily yeah. applaud them. That would be wonderful if they did that. But to your question, Benjamin, yes. uh,
0: no, we are professionals. And even <laughs> if there is nothing there, we have to talk about how there's nothing there.
1: Um, but- however, However, I do want to make it clear, we don't just pick any show at random. Uh, we've done that before, and that's led to some bland shows being discussed on Cancel Too Soon, and we do our best to make it interesting for you, but one of the things that we do when we decide what shows we're going to make is we try not to pick shows that seem bland. Yeah, well, But if they turn out bland, so be it. Or if, or if
0: they look bland, but they have some sort of weird angle, like they star somebody who's big now but wasn't at the time, or they just yeah. have a strange premise, even though it's executed blandly. So the reason why we don't cover a lot of sitcoms, there's not a lot of depth to a lot of like those single camera sitcoms. Well,
1: a lot of the failed sitcoms not are single are pretty, camera, multi-camera sitcoms. Uh, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the failed multi-camera sitcoms and you know you know the ones like The Full House where it's all mostly takes place on one or two sets, a living room and a kitchen. Mm. Um and a lot of those shows kind of rest on the laurels of family life or work life. Um And that's it. There isn't really a high concept, there isn't a particular point of view being expressed, it's not unique in any particular way, they're just trying to capture the universality, as they see it, of everyday life. And as a result, a lot of them don't make much of an impression and aren't really worth revisiting, at least not, at least not, okay, I'm not gonna say they're not worth revisiting, but maybe we shouldn't put them at the top of the queue. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they're not like, ooh, we really gotta get to men behaving badly or whatever <laughs> whatever the, that failed version of that was because it was a successful one and a failed one for every successful one
0: of those there's like 12 12 failed within a year
1: yeah it's just what's the premise of your show
0: uh, Three he's, and a half men he's a schlubby guy uh-huh. his wife is not his wife is very beautiful and he's a working class dude and that's it yeah
1: Thanks, honeymooners.
0: <laughs> that's, it's all, they're all the honeymooners, aren't
1: yeah, they? Yeah, a lot of them are, and that's and that's fine. And a lot mm. of those shows are actually really good. There's nothing terribly wrong with the something King of queens. Yeah, the King or, yeah. of Queens or Mad About You, or a lot mm. of these shows are just about relationships or whatever. But yeah, we haven't jumped at them. But mm. no, if we if we take the time to watch the show, we do the show. Mm. If we don't take the time to watch the show, well, we won't do the show because we haven't seen it.
0: Yeah, but, <laughs> but it's it's a a, fair sometimes question. we don't know. Yeah, it's um, a fair
1: question. It's a fair question. Though.
0: Yeah, but the, there hasn't ever been an instance where we just said we can't talk about this. Like there's no. there's nothing we got. We, we just watch it, and mm-hmm. by the time we're in front of the mic, we just say, "I got nothing to say." Sometimes,
1: it, sometimes it's a half hour episode. Yeah. We try not to do those, but sometimes. <laughs> That's all there is There's to it. There's just not a lot of richness to it. Yeah. Anyway, let's move mm-hmm. on. That was a good uh, question, though. Thank you.
0: Uh, here is a letter from Gabriel. Hello, Gabriel. Hello. Oh, and by the way, sign if you sign off your letters, that's what I'll read. If you don't sign off your letters, you're... Name redacted. Yeah. I'm not going to read your name off of a subject line or anything. Yeah,
1: in case he didn't want to be known for whatever uh, the question was.
0: Greetings, Whitney and William. I have a story related to your podcast that I'd like your opinion on, but first a correction is in order. Okay. I was listening to the review of the live-action Aladdin a while back, and Whitney pointed out that one of the lines in Friend Like Me was changed from the original line. Well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves, Scheherazade had a thousand tails. When he said that they changed the line to Scheherazade, he had a thousand tales, which would mean the songwriters unknowingly gender-swapped Scheherazade. As much as I would love for this to be true, simply from a comedic standpoint, this is not the case. After doing some research, I found that they simply changed the name uh, and changed the pronunciation of the name, pronouncing the E at the end, sounding like he, scheherazade <laughs> Oh, okay. I'd never heard it pronounced that way. I but, definitely never um, heard that.
1: Other. I don't know which one's accurate, but right. that's that's actually really good to know. Thank no, you for The that.
0: line remains the same. I just thought you guys might appreciate this little info. Well, thank you. That's no, a little bit of enlightenment. We
1: always appreciate being yeah. corrected. We want to be accurate yeah. whenever we can.
0: Uh, but here's the story. Uh, the other day, my father and I were driving around on business. For reference, I'm 23, and my father will be 59 in September. Okay. I studied film in college, so this was before September. Okay. So. Happy birthday, Dad. <laughs> Whoops. You're 59. Uh, I studied film in college as part of my major and review movies regularly, whereas he represents your average moviegoer. I don't mean that condescendingly. Mm. I decided to put on some of your podcasts because these drives can take several hours. We listened to your Caddyshack 2 episode, and he was annoyed with your opinions of the first film. He said, the movie doesn't make any sense. That's the point. You're just supposed to laugh at it. Why are they dissecting it? I explained that you're analyzing the film and your thoughts on it so that you may be you may compare it to its sequel properly. The next episode I put on was the Gods of Egypt episode. In the middle of your review of The Night of Counting the Years, he spoke up again. You were comparing and contrasting Egyptian and Western culture and assessing how your American upbringing affects how you experience and view movies. He asked, why are they talking about American civilization and all this? Why aren't they talking about the movie? I replied that you were contextualizing your... I'm, I'm using my best cantankerous 59-year-old dad voice. I here. picked up on it. Uh, I replied that you were contextualizing your thoughts with the background information. He said, but why are they interjecting themselves into the film? Why are they making it so personal, they should just talk about about the film and not bring themselves into it. This is where it gets fun. <laughs> okay. So we found ourselves in a debate about the nature of film criticism. He was arguing that a review should be as objective as possible and that it should tell you what the picture is about, who's in it, and whether it's good or not. I was saying that the whole point of review is to relate your personal experience with a movie, and that the purpose of a film critic is to try to bring new insight, and that once you state whether a film is good or not, you have already brought in subjectivity. Also, once everybody reviewed movies in the manner proposed, there would be no point of art at all because every review would essentially be the same, just with a different verdict. He elaborated, stating that a critic should tell you their opinion of a film, but that they don't have to bring themselves and their personal experiences into it. He believes that many critics bring in as much knowledge and as information as possible because they are full of themselves and want to seem intelligent and important, which I don't doubt. I don't think you two fall into this category. In response, I brought up Robert Warshaw's famous quote about a man going to the movies, how a critic has to be honest about what he saw and what he felt this branched out into many, many avenues, which I won't waste your time with. Although there was a pretty funny exchange where my father said, then film critics should just be people who tell you their opinions. And I said, exactly. (laughs) I would like to know your take on this. I try my best to explain to him uh, where you two were coming from, for your in-depth analyses while also stating my own viewpoints. But of course, no one could better describe your mindsets than yourselves. Please give yourselves, give your thoughts on this. If you could. Love what you do and keep up the great work, Gabriel.
1: I've had Mm. variations of that conversation so many times, especially Uh, on Twitter. Um, There is a school of thought about criticism Mm -hmm. um, that is very functional. That some people just think, they just want to know, what is it about? Mm. Who's in it? And yay or nay? Thumbs up, thumbs down. And some people, that's all they want from a review, but that's not really worth being a film critic for that.
0: Ironically, it was Siskel and Ebert, two critics I admire greatly. Uh, Ebert's one of my personal heroes, professionally. Um, They are incredibly intelligent. You read their reviews, and they are very insightful, and they tell you about where they come from and how films should be viewed. But when it came to their TV program, and I think Gene Siskel had this ethos, he said that people didn't want to tune in to see that analysis necessarily. He just wanted uh, something that could be kind of boiled down and put on a poster and kind of it was easily digestible. So they came up with the thumbs up, thumbs down thing, right. which they copyrighted. That's theirs. Uh, and in a, a lot of people turned to Cisco and Ebert and decried them for cheapening film discourse because of that
1: and even they were frustrated by that they didn't like being that reductive yeah it was and it's the reason why on critically acclaimed we do our C minus to C plus we had a lot of people write in saying hey listen the discourse is nice and all but at the end of the day i don't know whether you're recommending i see the film mm. so we toyed with a bunch of different opportunities and eventually we put it out to our listeners Oh, how, how do we grade this? And uh, it was um, it was Fozzie, right? It was, yeah, it was F- Fozzie Nelson. Fozzie Nelson came up with our rating system uh, for the B movies podcast. It was B minus to B plus, and we mm. adjusted it slightly when we did critically acclaimed. So now it's C minus to C plus, which actually makes a little bit more sense to me because C is just flat average. <laughs> um, but we, we just wanted to make it clear: do we think it's good? Oh. But that's a really unimportant part of the conversation, yeah. as far as we're concerned. Um, Some people need that, and that's fine, and that's part of it, but we're interested in the discourse about film, and people work their asses off to make movies, and if they turn out great, we want to talk about it. If they turn out bad, we want to talk about it. If they turn out mediocre, we want to talk about that, too. Movies don't exist in a vacuum. Movies are not binary good or bad, mm-hmm. and it is completely impossible to discuss them objectively because movies are trying to connect with you on a personal and emotional level, even the superficial ones. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to entertain you, but that's a personal thing. It's about taste, and yeah, taste is very personal. Uh, objective reality is for the sciences. That's what
0: that's what science exists for. And indeed, most Let's, of the sciences admit that it's and there's still a an impossible of, And there's brain. a lot of bias in that. In the fact, you know, we get down to quantum <laughs> mechanics, well, we measure it and we change the results. That's there's yeah. there's no objective reality.
1: Yeah, we, we if you want we, to get philosophical about it, but we strive to be uh, honest and earnest yeah. and as even handed and fair as we possibly can. But mm. that's not objectivity. Yeah, I, a lot of people feel
0: that it is a film critic's job to be the consumer advocate. Because a lot of people do look at films as a product they buy, which indeed it is. It costs they, money to see they a They go yeah. to a theater and they have to pay money to consume a product. And I think that's part of our job, but I don't think it's the most important part. It's, it's certainly part of our job, but we're looking out for the consumer's aesthetic well-being, the health of their soul. I'm not exactly how to put it. Well, we're we're, um, we're looking
1: out for the consumers, we're also <laughs> looking out for the art form, yeah, and the history thereof and the and the future potentially. Um there's a lot of things we're trying to do all at once. Film criticism isn't just one thing. I mm. think that's I think that's the problem people run into a lot when they think that especially in the arts that your job is to do one thing. Every mm. artistic job and indeed film criticism is an art. All art is a reaction to something. Mm-hmm. Film criticism is just a very specifically we're reacting to films. Yeah, but and, and and all art
0: is criticism. All art is looking at the world and criticizing and approving or disapproving of something out that's out there.
1: 100% and. is. That's absolutely correct. So again, I don't think objectivity is possible. Um, I do think it's important to be honest, and that if you don't think that you can be honest mm-hmm. about something, you have to back out. Because you know or, someone yeah. who made it or something right. like that. You're like, or, I would worry um, about hurting their feelings, so I don't want to be brutally honest. Then don't write that review.
0: If there's something in the film that, uh, like, affects you personally, then you have to confess to that in your review. Yeah. Saying, I, I responded very, very viscerally to this because um, I just went through it. Like, if it's a story about divorce, and it's a film about divorce, and you're reacting to it on that level then you have to sort of admit to that, yeah. don't you? That yeah. I responded very viscerally, very powerfully to this. I think it was a very important film, but it's because of my own personal choices in the matter, or not choices, experiences Here. in the yeah. matter. Uh, and I think all film critics are very good about that. I've read plenty of reviews. Well, not all, about, but many. Well, many. I've read plenty of reviews, though, that, that it have those sorts of confessions. I, I responded to this because of certain things in my own personal life. Right. That's when they're bringing themselves into it. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about a culture, uh, a cultural reaction or cultural politic, I think that's just a critic being self-aware, and I think all of us can afford to be a lot more self-aware, especially when we're consuming our art.
1: Uh, I get a lot if, of. Sorry,
0: yeah. if you're enjoying something or not enjoying something, it's really important. Uh, for the critic especially but for an individual as well to know why you're enjoying it or not
1: enjoying it exactly what you're responding to and what you're not responding to that's that's really all film criticism Mm. is is you watch something and then you say whether or not you enjoyed it but then as a critic you have to explain why and that's where knowledge of how the how the medium is produced the history of the medium uh the history of the genre the people involved that can all be a factor but also there's an element that's just Taste. I get a lot of people, you and I both got a lot of flack for our Mm. Rambo review most recently.
0: Because Rambo sucks. Well, okay, fine.
1: (laughs) But we we discussed that the film is a political statement, just like every Rambo film Mm. before it. This one maybe not as on the nose in some respects, but in other respects very much so. And a lot of people were just like, well, why can't you leave that out of it? Well, because if you find racism distasteful, (laughs) you might not enjoy it very much. So it's relevant. You know, if you find sexism distasteful, you might not enjoy a film that's steeped in sexism. And Mm. as someone who does find racism and sexism distasteful, I think it's worth pointing out that if a film is embedded within those ugly...
0: Social mores.
1: Yeah, social mores. That's a good way of putting it. Bad traditions. I think it's worth pointing out. And, you know, if you read the review and just say, I don't care, that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's on you. I'm just telling you how Mm. I feel. I'm trying to be very articulate. And I know some people who will even say, I get this actually quite a bit. (sighs) William Bibiani liked this, therefore I know it sucks. (laughs) Or vice (laughs) versa. I I get that from my family. (laughs) But
0: here's the thing. That means we're doing our job great. Uh It means you know what to expect from us, what our taste is, and you can follow what we would perhaps say and like you can adjust your taste according to ours this is not quite
1: the question that was offered but again it's not a film critics job to reflect the taste of the mainstream audience Mm. it's a job to know a lot about movies and write about them clearly and hopefully entertainingly and that's it that's most that's most of it basically and and who are we well we're film critics
0: and who are film critics are are we better are we full of ourselves We can be just like anybody. That's that's not a not yeah, a question. A lot of people are full of themselves. But uh, the only thing, and I've said this plenty of times before. The only thing you can say for sure about a film critic is that they've probably seen more movies than you have. Uh, even if you're a voracious consumer of film, it's likely that a film critic is consuming more professionally, which means they've seen a lot more, and you can kind of infer that they have a little bit more insight to bring to a film. They've probably seen a lot of trends and a lot of uh, actors and a lot of performances and a lot of uh, stylistic changes over the years a lot earlier than you did because they've seen a lot more. Of uh, They have a greater sampling, as it were.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Are are we full of ourselves? Are we trying to seem smarter? No, we've just seen a lot and we want to point out what we've seen and we have to explain why what we're seeing now might seem really shocking to somebody who's seeing that thing for the first time but is actually old hat for us. Yeah. And when we do that, we're encouraging you to look back, to go back to those early examples and see how something that came before might be better.
1: Yeah.
0: In any case... Um, we we responded not very well to Joker. Yeah. Because I found it. Some I found people it. really, really loved it. Well, maybe that was an... Incur- maybe a, a bad review might be an encouragement for you to go see The King of Comedy. Yeah. And understand why we're not so impressed by that thing done in Joker.
1: Yeah. Um, again, mm. a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people have opinions on how film criticism should work without actually doing film criticism. Mm. But that's true for a lot of different fields. People feel that way about politics. People yeah. feel that way about all kinds of things. It's not weird. It can be frustrating. But mm. anyway, um, so that's where we're coming from. Yeah. Um, it's film criticism isn't easy. Film criticism I mean, it's it's not like back-breaking physical labor most of the time, but it's not, like, just do one thing yeah. really fast. It's not just jot down title, plot synopsis, actors, and thumbs up. You, there's more to it than that, and there should be more to it yeah. than that.
0: Yeah, of course, it, it can be back-breaking labor. Have you ever tried to drive from the west
1: side into the heart of Hollywood by 7 p.m.? Oh, my God. The, uh, or, or Or to Burbank at 3 p.m. and back at 7 p.m.? And you're just in traffic for four and a half hours. Yeah, that's a long a day. That's a long it's day. It's a
0: long, hard day, all right? We do We do work.
1: Los Angeles traffic is work,
0: David. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Here's a letter from Sam. Hello, Sam. Hi, Sam. Uh, hello, gents. Uh, listening to a recent episode of the always fantastic critically acclaimed in which Whitney went on a familiar yet accurate soliloquy <laughs> about high frame rate and how fucking weird it is to the film viewing eyes. <laughs> stating that, quote, as-is, high frame rate as a visual effect, which lead led me to think about where I see high frame rate most frequently, YouTube videos. This mm. is actually antithetical to how to use those videos uh, as they are portrayed in film, where they're actually low-res and have faux-digital artifacts. So my questioning is, why not have those sections in a film shot in said high frame rate to be, A, more accurate to the look that we're familiar with, and, B, ease that technology into the eyes of the theater-goer? Um... Uh, why not have films that use the gimmick slash conceit of the film *Searching* in high frame rate, mm-hmm. and avoid experimenting on traditional quote big Hollywood style films like *Gemini Man*?
1: Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Uh,
0: hopefully, this peaks a fun conversation between you. Keep being aw- the awesomeness that you are.
1: No, it's not a bad yeah. idea at all. Actually, like something like *Searching* would be perfect for that. Like, mm. and there are indeed other places. We didn't talk about this in the episode. Um, there are other high places where we get high frame rate video games. A lot of video games are at, like, 60 frames per second because Mm -hmm. you're doing this really complicated activity and you need as much visual information as possible in order to weave through a virtual reality environment as accurately as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, Movies aren't the same. Movies aren't processed the same. Movies aren't as interactive, usually. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a good point. And actually, searching probably would have been a very effective use of a high frame rate. Mm -hmm. It probably would have been less jarring. Uh, we're already in something of an off-kilter position, because if you haven't seen Searching, by the way, excellent movie. Uh, <laughs> John Cho plays a dad whose daughter goes missing, but it takes place entirely on the screens of his laptop or his cell phone as he is going through all of her social media and her mm. videos, trying to uncover the mystery of who his daughter really was and why she is not here anymore it's
0: one of the best edited films you'll ever see it really is it it was not up for like any kind of editing awards except for our critical body (laughs) the los angeles online film Critics society gave that film editing accolades
1: and and on top of that it's not just a gimmick movie like a lot of people looked at it as oh it's one of those Mm. uh friend request oh no unfriended it's one of those unfriended Mm. movies like it'll take place on the screen where taking place on the screen is a gimmick it is a gimmick. It is you know a novelty to try to get you in a theater. Searching is also spectacularly well-written.
0: It's really well-written. Uh, I had John Cho as its lead actor, and he's just fantastic.
1: Yeah, and... it's John Cho staring at a screen for 90 minutes, and it's riveting. <laughs> it's a really excellent film. I, 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 could, I It only keeps growing in my estimation. I, I could
0: watch before. him sit up in bed in the morning and yawn and scratch and say, Wow, what a great performance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if that whole movie had been in a high frame rate, that mm. would have made sense. It would have totally fit. And you're right, that might have been a really excellent way to sort of guide us into this. It's like, um, um, it's hard. I'm trying to think of like found footage is another like sort of gimmicky sort of film style, but we needed to find the way to make it work. Like Mm -hmm. what's the way to, to do it. And the idea of, okay, well, people know security cameras. People understand the visual iconography of security cameras. So what we're going to do is we're going to tell a movie from security cameras, people set up in their house, but in the house, what's actually going on is, Mysterious and ghostly. And that's yeah. how Paranormal Activity, not the first found footage movie, but the found footage movie that exploded the genre and launched mm. a whole wave of imitators. Like, non-stop, constant imitators. It was lot, for almost a whole decade, we had that stuff. Yeah, and there's still a few. There's, like, one coming out later this month. Mm. Like, it, it's not dead, but that was, the, that was the trick. We found the right use for the visual storytelling technique. Yeah. Now... Yeah, the the traditional blockbusters aren't
0: going to work. And uh, we were talking about this on the Gemini Man episode, how there is perhaps a fundamental artificiality to cinema that we've come to rely on. And whether or not that's just what we were weaned on or a vitally important element of the medium itself is up for debate. Maybe if the technology changes and we find everything in high frame rate in the future, then that will just be the evolution of the form.
1: It happens. I mean, digital... Digital projection mm-hmm. used to be a rarity, and now it's the norm. It happened in our lifetimes. So it can yeah. totally happen at a high frame rate. And
0: when we were around to see the transition, we were kind of... Not on, not on board with the transition because the new stuff wasn't good. It wasn't yeah. as good as what we had. It and took now a
1: while for it to. It took a while, and now
0: it's improving, and it's finally reached the point where it's a, you know at, at least as good as film,
1: give or take. Yeah. yeah, like it's it's you'd be hard pressed to tell what's mm. film and what's digital in a lot of movies. And
0: maybe that's what's going to happen with high frame rate. Maybe it's just a matter of training our eye as an audience.
1: Um, but in order to do that, we mm. need to make sure people actually yeah. want to see it,
0: and it has to be used wisely. Until then, and I feel like someone like. Like, if you remember uh, Natural Born Killers, Mm -hmm. that used, like, eight different kinds of film stock. It shot on, like, videotape and 16mm and 35mm. I think it was some 8mm reels. Um, It it was just... They tried to give it as varied a visual look as possible. Is that possible?
1: Because you're a projectionist. Is that possible, like, in in contemporary movies where you could have 24 frames per second and then for one sequence Mm. go to ultra-high frame rate? Not on film. You could do it digitally. But digitally, that's conceivable.
0: I am... I imagine so. Um, I don't have as much experience with digital projectors as I do
1: with cinema projectors. Because I'm imagining, like, because they're doing another Matrix. I don't know if it's a reboot Mm. or or sequel or whatever, but the Wachowskis are doing another Matrix. Mm. It might be interesting to have, like the matrix looks like normal film. Yeah, but when yeah. they pop out into the real world, all of a sudden it's high, it's, frame, rate, it's high yeah. frame rate. And that's disorienting as disorienting as it would be for Neo or anyone that, else.
0: That kind of, well, that's what I was going to say about, uh, about natural born killers. If you're tr- switching back and forth between various mindsets and you're trying to evoke different things in the scene, then switching from normal to high frame rate will make sense. Uh, something like, uh, or like the wizard, let's say if they remake the wizard of Oz, Kansas yeah. is shot on film and Oz is in high frame rate. um, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Let's say the Imaginarium is in high frame rate. Instead, they just made it into this big CGI, this ugly CGI nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Movie works surprisingly well for how troubled the production was. Yes. It's it's still not great. No, it's not great. uh, But yeah, imagine they they go into some sort of like fantasy world and everything's in high frame rate. Um, I'd love to see a, a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream where ju- cool. just the fairy scenes are in high frame rate. Yeah, that could kind of yeah, work. Kinda, I could see that. Or just the real world was in high frame rate and the unreality of traditional oh, cinema oh. was what was in the in What the if you
1: did uh, a movie of The Flash mm. and whenever he used his speed powers it was high frame rate?
0: Oh, th- that would work too. That'd be cool. Yeah. Oh, I like that. <laughs> and you could like, kind of switch rapidly back and forth between the four... That would be a good way to train the eye.
1: I like that. That's um, kind of neat. Because yeah, the... there's this thing I noticed that when I saw The Hobbit mm. uh, in a high frame rate. The first... 30 seconds or so everything looks like fast motion because i mm. wasn't used to seeing so many frames and together and it looked oh. like everything was moving too quickly my eye adjusted very fast but that would work for the flash who's mm. supposed to move too quickly exactly <laughs> yeah I, I dig it man yeah.
0: <laughs> so there there are ways to use it i think Ong lee just used it badly uh yeah. he, he's enamored with this new technology he's trying to push the new technology and he's not doing it right now The cutting edge cuts both ways. I think that's basically it. We're trying, we're not always going to succeed. I think by trying, however, he's still pushing the narrative forward. And I I think because Peter Jackson tried and failed, years later, Ang Lee tried again and
1: failed, somebody's going to keep on trying. Well, you look at it in the historical uh, context, like, look at how long it took between when we invented 3D technology and, uh, surprise, they were trying that in the silent era. Yeah. Like, you can actually, there was a museum uh, piece they did at... At, at uh, Oh, was that Lockhart or was yes. it a Hammer? Okay, there was a museum thing they did in Los Angeles, and they had early 3D test reels from the silent era. Mm. It wasn't until, like, the late 2000s that we started m- making that effective enough that people actually wanted it. Uh-huh. Like there would, go
0: see it in theaters like
1: people would intermittently try and there'd be a few successful gimmick 3d movies over the years if you adjust for inflation house of wax starring vincent price this 3d novelty film mm-hmm. still one of the highest grossing films in, in american history <laughs> um but yeah we didn't like cement it and make it commonplace and make it acceptable and satisfying mm-hmm. to the eye for about 75 years yeah yeah
0: and I'm, I'm thinking... Uh, the analog I'm going to go to is George Lucas. George Lucas was very, very fond of digital technology. He said, this is the wave of the future, and he pushed hard. Yep. The reason we have digital cinema, s- cinema is largely because of the efforts of George Lucas, almost
1: single-handedly. Well, he practically blackmailed them. Oh, you want to yeah. show a Star Wars movie? You got you to project yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah.
0: He, he made... Uh, he shot... Uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace on film and on digital and it was mostly digital film a lot of it was on green screens but there were a lot of practical effects as well mm-hmm. by the time he made the film that followed that um, Attack of the clones. clones that was almost all on green screens uh, there were full CGI most, many full CGI characters there weren't a lot of practical elements and he wanted it to be projected digitally it looked like crap there were, like, little float, <laughs> floating white dots in all of the blacks. Everything looks really gray and indistinct. It was a bad projection. Uh-huh. But that's all we had in 2002 or whenever that movie came out. Hell, a few years later, uh-huh. I remember
1: seeing Iron Man 2 in digital projection. And they're uh-huh. bragging about it. Like, ooh, see, digitally projected. I'm like, okay, it's the only one playing at midnight. I need to go see this awesome movie. uh uh-huh. There was a digital artifact on the screen the entire time. Oh, like a little dot, like a little square or something oh, like that. God. Like it was like the entire. And I'm like, okay, we are not here yet. Can we put this on film? <laughs> when we get here, cool. But mm. we're not. <laughs> but uh, I, I,
0: I kept on reading all of these articles back in 1999 about MaxiVision 48, <laughs> and uh, MaxiVision 48 was going to be this new kind of 70 millimeter film stock, celluloid film, like physical film stock. It was, I think, it was made of a new kind of polyester resin that was like mm. even more flexible and more indestructible than the usual polyester resin that they were already using. Me. It had a new kind of dyeing process uh, so the dyes would not fade. Uh, it ran through, it ran at forty-eight frames per second. And it ran through the projector on these, like, special air blasters, so it technically never touched the projector. Oh, I remember hearing about that, it remained in, like, pristine condition no matter how many times you ran it. Yeah,
1: there's no scratching, there's no nothing. It it always looks good,
0: all And the people, like, just the press and the critics who were able to see MaxiVision 48 said it was the best thing they'd ever seen. And it was, it paled in comparison to digital. But because of George Lucas and all his shenanigans, that was the one that was pushed. That was the narrative that emerged this is the way of the future and that indeed here's where we are everything is now digital
1: everything's shot digitally well, you're, you're saying digitally. digital pale in comparison to MaxiVision
0: in terms of quality uh, okay yeah. it Maxi- sounded
1: like you said the other thing okay, okay no, no. Uh,
0: yeah digital was not as good as MaxiVision but that everybody said this is what we're gonna have to do everything's gonna have to be digital from now on you don't have to deal with these big clunky prints I can lift things
1: I'm fine right well there's well <laughs> the, 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 one of the issues with cinema and with mm. distribution is standardization is important standardization
0: well also mail uh, yeah, actually, just the post office getting a print, especially if it was a Maxi Vision 48 print, which would have been like gigantic 70 millimeter reels. It's got to weigh like 100 pounds for a single movie, a little yeah. truck, a little digital truck that you plug into a, a digital projector. It's it's in like a miniature suitcase. It's the size of a DVD box set. Yeah, it's tiny. It's easier to mail one of those. Yeah. Now you can mail movies on little, like, keys, little thumb drives on some projectors.
1: Anyway, uh, to get back to the overall point, um, I do think that there is a use for high frame rate. Mm -hmm. I don't think we found it yet. I think you have a very good idea in terms of using it in terms of uh, movies that are about digital projection, digital screens. Mm -hmm. Um, I like Winnie's idea of intercutting between and movies where it's thematically appropriate. Um, I think we'll get there, but we're not there yet.
0: I think once we get used to the intercutting, uh, then somebody will come along with an appropriate use of, the, uh, of that aesthetic.
1: And then once it gets normalized, maybe mm-hmm. then we can put every movie there and everyone will be mm-hmm. sort of fine with it. Yeah. But I, th- I still think there's always going to be... And don't mind adding new tools to the toolbox. I always hate it when we take them away. Yeah. And I think yeah. there will always be a place for the original frame rate, just as there's always mm-hmm. a, a place for black and white, yeah. because it's a visual aesthetic mm-hmm. that has a purpose. Oh, I just thought of something. Uh, you've seen Jacques
0: Tati's Playtime, right? Actually, I haven't. Oh, you haven't. There is a shot in Jacques Tati's Playtime where we follow somebody going into an apartment building, and the, the entire side of the apartment building is glass. Mm-hmm. And you can see six units, three on top and three on the bottom. I think it's a full six units. Yeah. And it's just a lockdown shot, and you can see what's going on in each of the units. And if you look carefully, you can see people... Like passing from one unit, like into a back room, and it looks like they're interacting with what's going on in the next unit. It's oh, a jock cool. Tod- toddy kind of joke. Yeah, where it looks like they're affecting reality in the next apartment over. I feel like if you're going to do a high frame rate, like super detailed image, like you know, 180k, 1 million k, whatever it is, just do a static shot of like a city block. Yeah, and let us find the little miniature narratives hiding in each one. That'd be cool. because we'll be able to see all that detail now. That's a good use of high frame rate. That'd be cool because if you're going to include that much detail, you need to have a much more complicated shot. I dig it because we have to absorb that much more information.
1: I dig it. That's so, insanely complicated. So get, get, but I dig
0: it. It's a it's a, a a medium that is now adapting to more complicated images. I agree. We I just, just have to adapt to. No, that.
1: I don't mean the images is complicated. But mm-hmm. I mean like to pull it off with that level of choreography yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be insanely complicated. Yeah, but and probably worth it. It'd be it's fascinating. Kind of, yeah,
0: kind of where we need to go, I think. Yeah, maybe. Hey. Let's do another one. Here's a letter from Jim. Hi Jim. Hi Jim. Uh, gentlemen, I haven't written in a while, and like every human, I like to hear my name said out loud.
1: Jim, 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 Jim. Jim, 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 Jim,
0: Thank you for all your content. While I distill whiskey at 5 a.m. in the morning. Wow. Uh, as your job, I hope. <laughs> you can have yeah. a hobby. That's true. Yeah, sir. People like whiskey. Yeah. <laughs>. Uh, We are the angels taking the share. Uh, While listening to some of your soundtracks of films from recent years like A Star is Born, Aladdin, and Into the Spider-Verse, I started going into the soundtracks of film musicals. It began with La La Land, then Robert Preston's The Music Man, Ah. and some, uh, some of the animated Disney films. Eventually, I came across a soundtrack to 2005's version of The Producer's. I dug this movie then and now. I think Lane and Broderick are able to give a genuinely enjoyable performance after performing the same act, presumably hundreds of times. Uma Thurman is Uma Thurman, and we all love Uma Thurman. It's fun to see John Barrowman with blonde hair. I still believe to this day that Toby Maguire is uh, one of the auditioning Hitlers. I didn't spot that.
1: I actually, yeah. I think I saw that once when it came out. But yeah. Okay.
0: Ferrell was good as Franz, but I imagine
1: someone like Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> <laughs> I like it.
0: Be, that would have been great. Men's Mikkelsen can actually be quite funny. He's yeah, he's usually, game. He usually plays heavies. He's game. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of this film? Uh, do you have any other favorites in movies that turned into musicals, turned into movies genre? <laughs> <laughs> Which would you like to see? Any answer other than
1: Spamalot is incorrect. you <laughs> again and keep up the good work. Key change, Jim. Um, I I saw the producers. I've seen the, the original producers many times. It's a okay. brilliant, brilliant yeah. subversive, challenging comedy, and it's really funny, and it's great. Um, I never saw the Broadway production of the producers. I did see the movie once, and frankly, I wasn't feeling it. Um, It felt to me like the staginess of the Mm. musical version kind of took away from, I don't know, just sort of the naturalism of the performances I liked in the original. Mm. It's a broad, silly concept, but I believed in Zero Mostel, and I believed in Gene Mm. Wilder, that... They were real characters who were embarking on this crazy journey. And, um, yeah, it just, felt, it just felt a little phonier to me yeah. in the remake. Uh, I also wasn't super in love with the, with the songs. I couldn't hum one of no. them to you now. Um, it's okay. I prefer the original. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan.
0: I, I also think it's just okay. Uh, yeah. I, I think, yeah, like you, I'd, I'd seen the 1968 film way too many times. So by the time I just sort of hear the same jokes repeated... With sort of a wink to the audience, it's like, well, I I know the jokes already. You don't have to wink now.
1: I feel like when you uh, do when you do a movie um, and turn into a musical on Broadway, mm-hmm. um, the half of the fun is seeing someone recreate the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, and, and we're doing that. You know the thing you like. We're going to do a slightly different version because well, and also and, it's on stage.
0: We have to have live actors doing it. It's a completely different medium. Yeah, and now we have to see how can we do this film in a, a you know in a Broadway. Uh, production. Yeah. There's a SpongeBob SquarePants stage musical. How the hell do you do that? That's an animated show about a sponge. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be fascinated. Okay, what do you do? Well, you get a
1: kid and you put him in little pants and a beanie and you have him leap around in like little yellow shorts. All right. Yeah. In any case, um, that I think is a little more interesting usually mm. than translating it Back in the film, I feel like what you end up is like that one Michael Keaton from Multiplicity, where he was a copy of a copy, and <laughs> yeah, he just wasn't yeah, that yeah. sharp anymore. Um, however, it has been done, and it has been done well, specifically with Little Shop of Horrors.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. That's a good one. The, uh, That's a
1: really good one.
0: That That is a good one. The original is, is awful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Jack Nicholson's fun in it.
0: Yeah, he has like one scene. He's, he's still fine. He's, he's yeah, very young Jack Nicholson. He's the, he plays the Bill Murray, I guess, in the nineteen eighty six film.
1: No, Stephen Martin. Jack Nicholson was Steve Martin. Steve Martin plays the evil dentist. But Jack Nicholson isn't the evil dentist in that scene. Am I remember
0: this he, movie totally wrong? I thought he, he was the dentist. No, he's the masochist. He's the guy in he's the, the chair. He's the guy in the, the chair who thinking. wants his mouth yeah. poked out. And, and, You're right. And, and Seymour is the one who ends up pulling out all his teeth. And he says, thank you, thank you for pulling out all my teeth. You're
1: absolutely right. Yeah. I was remembering that it's wrong. It's just that one yeah. scene.
0: And he, it's he's definitely a highlight. But yeah, it's it's a, a cheap looking film that is badly thought thought out, not well shot. The premise is
1: ridiculous. Yeah,
0: a, a, the guy starts feeding things to his plant. But it's a comedy. And the jokes don't land. And it's over in an hour so. So at least you got out of there quick. <laughs> Thank you, Roger Corman.
1: Uh, and then some mad genius had the idea to turn that into a big Broadway doo-wop musical. Well, off-Broadway, but yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. eventually, I think eventually it eventually played Broadway, didn't it? Uh, it was. I think it was revived on Broadway eventually. But um, yeah. And the music is great. Mm-hmm. And the plot is just weird enough that it works well in the arch-musical genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they put it back onto film, it was nothing but an improvement and it has a great cast and it it has great musical numbers and the visual effects are awesome excellent special effects in that movie yeah so that one works because Mm. I feel like in that one I feel like the producers as a musical and again I never saw the Broadway version Mm. I did see the movie they're not really transforming the producers as much as they are sort of Mm. adding songs but whereas (laughs) Little Shop of Horrors turning that into a musical completely reshapes the entire narrative. Yeah, yeah. Changes well, the tone, changes the, think... the vibe, changes the, the, the appeal, everything about it. And then when mm. you put that back on camera, and now you can make the visual effects better than they were on Broadway or in the original, it still feels like you're moving forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- A movement of the 1968 producers to the stage is actually a movement forward, I think. Mm Because the original film is about theater producers. It's about staging a musical. Why is that a film? That should have been a play to begin with. Makes sense. And so to bring that to the stage in a big budget sort of way, get a big star cast and make it about these people who are trying to put on springtime for Hitler. It's uh, all of a sudden this gigantic big budget piece of subversive nonsense Oh, not not even nonsense, it's kind of pointed satire of, yep. of the Broadway uh, mindset. Yeah. So it makes sense to move that to stage. When you move the stage back to the screen, it just rever- reverts how, uh, reveals
1: how backward that whole process is. Uh, S- a serious question. Mm. The Producers came out in the late 1960s. Yeah. That's only about 25 years removed from World War II. Uh-huh. It's important to remember just like how like, really fucked up and daring that was <laughs> it, uh, to even in jest turn, turn hitler into a joke yeah, yeah. To, and yeah like even in jest like and it's obviously yeah. jest and it works and it's great it's a person but like how much of a gamble that was as a movie yeah it's
0: kind of odd how safe it is in 2005 or when that movie came out
1: fair enough and i think largely because movies like uh the producers sort of opened the door for that kind of comedy but um, I actually wonder if it had started as a Broadway musical would it have been rejected for the same reasons they expected the play to be rejected to in the first place probably would, yeah. would it have been a little less palatable as a broad bit of pageantry it's as it's, opposed to uh, the subversive cinema mm, stylings of Mel Brooks.
0: It's possible that Mel Brooks even pitched it to Broadway producers and got rejected. I would be curious to yeah. find that out. It's like, fine, I'll make a movie. I, you know, you, you Broadway types won't be afraid of a movie because there's a, still to this day a definite divide mm. between film and stage. Yeah. Uh, the, the two worlds, like actors do move back and forth. Actors do. But yeah, the, the, the attitudes towards the different uh, forms remain divided. Uh, as for films that started as a musical, moved to stage, and moved back to screen, there aren't too many examples. No, there really aren't.
1: Um, 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 that's why I brought up Little Shop. Yeah. Because it's one of the few. It's also really good. Mm-hmm. Um, Hairs-
0: Hairspray is the other one. Hairspray is a yeah. good one. Hairspray
1: is a good example. I actually never saw the the remake. I never saw the movie remake. Oh, okay. Judge Vault. Yeah. I never saw that. It's mm-hmm. um, fine.
0: I've seen all three versions. I saw okay. saw a John Waters' film. I saw a stage a stage production, and I yeah. saw the
1: original. Uh, or the re- the remake film of the musical. I don't know if I've seen any of like the big mm. stage musicals based on movies, like mm. I've, even the ones I've heard good things about, like Kinky Boots or or uh, Mean Girls, yeah, which I hear are really good, um, well, or uh, Legally Blonde, or any of those. Like I just I've just haven't the the notion of turning a
0: film into a like a big Broadway stage musical uh, is a relatively new innovation as well. I remember when it first kind of started up. I remember when Big. Was adapted for the stage, like that's a little odd. You're taking, yeah, it's weird. Because I remembered growing up, it was all about how stage musicals were this sort of rarefied, glorious thing, and we're trying to capture that magic and put it on film, and rarely succeeding. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, Broadway wants to take from films the lesser form. <laughs> harumph! Harumph! I pop! I pop! And, well, that's uh, why
1: when I think about like what movies would you like to turn into mm-hmm. musicals, my I tend to veer in the direction of camp. Yeah. Like I would love to see Batman and Robin the musical. Why not? It's, that would be it's great. It's
0: practically a musical as is. Yeah, yeah. You,
1: it, it fits. It's broad. It's silly. It's, they already it's, did a Spider-Man musical. Yeah, why not? And just take this thing that has become a cult oddity, mm-hmm. whether you like it, whether you love it or hate it. Most people have at least seen it. Mm-hmm. And it, we find it fascinating just how completely wrong it is. Like everything about it feels mm-hmm. like a mistake. <laughs> like every single choice was the wrong choice. But that could be fascinating In an outlandish camp
0: musical on stage. That could be really great. Which they've done with Evil Dead. There's Evil Dead musical. There's a Plan 9 musical. There's a Reefer Madness musical. Reefer Madness
1: musical is really good. Oh, that's another one. (laughs) Reefer Madness musical. uh, The the original is, you know, this awful scare film. Uh, The musicals. I actually never saw it live, but the movie version of the musical starring um, Kristen Bell is great. (laughs) It's really funny, and the music is really great. It works.
0: It's really good. I would love to see a stage musical of shock treatment. Yeah, that'd be good cuz <laughs> cuz Rocky Horror started the Rocky Horror show was on stage and yeah. then they turned it into the Rocky Horror picture show and it became this long running cult phenomenon which is still going to this day. Yeah. And then they made, Richard O'Brien in the 80s made a sequel, and it wasn't as well regarded. It still stay, runs on theaters occasionally, just because of its connection to Rocky
1: Horror. Yeah. And I maintain that the music in Shock Treatment is as good, if not better, than the music in Rocky Horror. The soundtrack is 30 times better than the movie <laughs> of, of Shock Treatment. And I like the movie okay. Mm. The soundtrack is yeah. exceptionally good. Like, seriously, whether you see the movie or not, I think it's on Spotify or whatever, check out the, the, the soundtrack to Shock Treatment. Mm. It's a bunch of really brilliant <laughs> instrumentation and complicated lyrics and jokes upon in jokes upon in jokes and it's a delight. Oh
0: toaster! Yeah. <laughs> Bitching in the
1: kitchen is really great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The micro digital awaker. Why <laughs> are we always sooner or later?
0: <laughs> we'll stop or we'll get sued. <laughs> Not, not just by the producers, but because we're terrible singers. Hey. Okay, I'm a terrible singer. Thank you.
1: <laughs> You're
0: fine. <laughs> I can do karaoke okay. You can carry a tune.
1: I can carry I, a tune. I, 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 I wouldn't sing put you in, in one of the three tenors anytime soon. I, I did I didn't sing in my tune. youth choir. I, do, I can at yeah. least
0: carry a tune, which is failing as I get older
1: what are you going to do? It's that ring. But I feel like
0: like, uh, just what the stage provides is not something that cinema can capture all that well. And I know we've talked a lot about this. When we talk about Chicago, I always bring this up about how just sort of the, the immediacy and just the certain, for lack of a better term, just the magic Mm. Of live theater, the life that's in live theater is not something that can be put on film. And yeah, there, are, there, are,
1: there are plenty of good film musicals, some of which are actually but, like just filmed stage musicals. Like mm-hmm. watch the movie Zoot Suit sometime. Yeah, they just filmed the stage musical, um, but really dynamically, and they put the camera on the stage and everything, and it's great. I love mm-hmm. that movie, but it's 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 got that sort of pageantry and showiness and slight phoniness of Broadway. The, the, the,
0: the whole thrill of the theater is you're seeing a person in the same room as you yeah. actually singing that and performing that in real time your connection with that performance is going to be all the stronger because you're there.
1: Yeah.
0: It, that's that's what life is. Cinema is recorded. It's it's a, an artificial light art form by dint of its tools. Yeah. And you're not going to get that same thing. And when they let actors who aren't professional singers try to sing their own parts, it's just embarrassing.
1: Yeah. All right, well, let's
0: move on. We, right. I think we have time for one more letter. Okay, let me call it up here. Maybe I'll two move. if they're short. <laughs> okay. Um... This is a bit long, but I think it's okay, so. uh, this is a recent one. Uh, hi guys, I'd appreciate uh, if you took a, a closer look at Joker in terms of its genre positioning mm. I was a bit frustrated in your discussion of the film by the unflattering comparisons you made to films like Christine and King of Comedy I feel like this is comparing apples and oranges and is largely unfair as a basis or uh, for dismissing or critiquing the film Okay. more specifically I feel that as two film critics who so often claim to respect genre and espouse genre literacy you gave short shrift to the particular genre positioning of Joker it's, Joker. it's clearly a film that subsists within or if you like exists in dialogue with superhero cinema or comic book movies mm. as we've come to know them as a dominant the dominant form of the 21st century hollywood blockbuster. Surely it's highly appropriate to approach Joker then as a superhero adjacent film as such we need to take into account its positioning within that ecosystem to look at the ways in which both it both partakes and plays with those conventions pushing and pulling at those genre parameters. Perhaps the first thing to note is that Joker is innovatively simply is innovative simply on the grounds that it is the first supervillain origin story ever attempted within contemporary blockbuster cinema. Is it not? So, given that it's the first, how does it push and pull on pre-existing genre parameters as established by the accumulating canon of blockbuster superhero cinema since Iron Man and the Avengers? And perhaps one piece that is remarkable here is that it's defli- that it is deflationary or demystifying deflationary is not a word I've heard before (laughs) in the sense that it supplies a backstory that brings the Joker down to earth. In other words, part of what made the Joker celebrated in the first place was his quote motiveless malignity. Indeed, some critics claim that Todd Phillips film does the Joker a disservice and misunderstands the nature of the character's appeal by supplying too much backstory, making the character too legible and therefore decreasing his uncanny fascination as a character. But maybe deflating the mythos of the character is the very point of the film. If so, is this not innovative, as a move within to make the genre parameters of the comic comic book movie as as they've come to be established? In other words, doesn't Todd Phillips' film, in multiple ways, mess with the conventions or grammar of contemporary blockbuster comic book movies? And as people who appreciate genre, isn't that worth paying attention to? What is genre anyway but a set of movies which, with subsequent films within that genre, partake of and play with and play off of, pushing and pulling and, in the best instances, creating new and innovative patterns and shapes? Isn't 2019's Joker an exemplary instance of this? Thank you for your thoughts.
1: Uh, That is a Uh, really articulate and well-considered rebuttal to our arguments. From uh, from Dara. Uh, Dara, that's an excellent letter, and you make some excellent points Mm -hmm. here. I take issue with a few of them, and I'm going to debate a few of them, but I do think those are really fine examples of ways we can interpret films the same film slightly differently Mm -hmm. and emerge with different perspectives uh to start with i do want to take issue with one thing which is is it the first supervillain movie Mm. it is not uh first off you gotta you can go back at least as far as danger diabolic which we've covered on Mm -hmm. our show but you're talking about contemporary contemporary well-known
0: big uh big company Superhero characters.
1: uh Suicide Squad had been yeah. the origin of Harley Quinn before this. Uh, we had Split, which was a supervillain right, yeah. movie. It was more of an indie thing, but regardless, that's the way it was framed. And in fact, it's very similar to Joker in a lot of ways, and the deal deals with mental health. I was going to
0: bring up Split. I was also going to bring up Super, where he sees himself as a hero, but is mm. really kind of just a horrible murderer.
1: I was going to bring up the animated movie Megamind, which is oh, all about a villain yeah. who. Defeats and kills their hero, and then has an existential crisis. Yeah, Um, it's actually a pretty good movie. I don't love it, but it's good. I like it. Um, Brightburn subverted the Superman myth in order to create a supervillain origin story, and I found that one at least from a you know from the perspective of a superhero. Horror subversion. Story, yeah. yeah, I found that clever. A you know, little mm. little you know, a little surfacey, just kind of did that thing and then left, but mm. it was fun. Um, also uh Joss Whedon's Doctor Horrible sing-along blog, which was originally oh, a web series. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was originally a web series, but mm. they when you watch them all together, it's a short film. Mm. Like like it's feature length, but it's a very okay. short, feature length film. So it has been done. Mm. That doesn't mean Joker can't be an interesting version of it, but technically it has been done. Um here's my issue with joker in terms of let's ignore it as a work of art house cinema and focus on it as a work of superhero cinema mm-hmm. the movie doesn't want you to do that yeah, I, think. Movie, I think the
0: it- movie itself in giving you such a uh, an overwhelming uh indie vibe and style this is yeah. something the filmmakers put into it yeah uh that it is actually requesting of the audience for you to look past uh, its genre. Yeah,
1: they're, t- they're telling you you need to take this seriously, and by name-checking, not other superhero stories, but films like Taxi Driver and Gang of Comedy, mm. the film is putting itself within that context. Yeah. And therefore, it's only rational that we will try to judge the film within that context, and the danger of that, when you try to openly compare yourself with classic movies, is that if you don't hold up to that standard, even if you don't only come close... You pale in comparison, and that's Mm -hmm. a shame. But let's talk about it as a superhero movie, because one of the reasons why we didn't discuss this in too much detail in our initial review is because a lot of the superhero-adjacent or just flat-out embracement Mm -hmm. of the superhero genre stuff comes towards the end, and it's kind of spoilery. Yeah. So we didn't want to get into it in too much detail at the time. But um, by the second half, and especially the last third of Joker... What started off as a story which you remove the name Joker and maybe Mm. the clown stuff, you just place it with literally anything, could have been any urban vigilante movie. Yeah, yeah.
0: it could have have been like a riff on Death Wish.
1: Yeah, Um, about halfway through it, Thomas Wayne starts becoming a key uh, member of of the supporting cast, at least in terms of the plot.
0: Thomas Wayne, that is to say, Bruce Wayne's father. Bruce Wayne, that is to say, Batman.
1: Yep, and Bruce Wayne shows up. Uh, And then by
0: Bruce Wayne is a character in the movie. He's only like nine, but yeah.
1: And then um, by the end of the film, uh, the whole world is in disarray because of something this outsider has done. Mm. um, Perhaps without really intending to. Uh, And there's a huge riot in the streets of Gotham city. Uh, People are dying. Presumably people's origins are being created as we speak. Not just the one we see, but others even, Mm. Um, even that was done by Batman begins. Yeah, that's how Batman Begins ends with Mm -hmm. uh, the the Scarecrow. Uh, Yeah, The Scarecrow literally frees all of the mental uh, uh, patients in Arkham City and they all go on a running amok Mm -hmm. that that's been done before as well. Uh, Um, But, you know, when you when you
0: start to see the superhero positioning after a half of a movie where it doesn't have that vibe, it begins to. Feel like it's trying to cheapen what it had set out to do at the the beginning, mm-hmm. and it starts to deteriorate as a film because it had. Oh, excuse me. It had, it had previously asked us to ignore genre, and now all of a sudden it's asking us to embrace a lot of really typical stuff. How did the How did the Joker get a lot of minions? Well, it turns out there are a bunch of cloud mask wearing rioters who are going to follow him and see him as a symbol. So now he has he has servants. I, so I now buy it. I, 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 makes I, sense. I buy it. But now we're positioning for this fatalistic idea of what we know the Joker to be.
1: And the other thing that frustrates me is I think that goes both ways. I think both of these things are actually sort of undermining each half. If you get really invested in the art house version of Joker, Mm -hmm. then it can seem really frustrating and contrived when it starts following very conventional superhero mechanics towards the end. And it feels like all of this depth that you're striving for, I don't think you succeed, but I think you're striving for it, ultimately fuels conventional superhero cinema but mm. and at the same time if you're looking for conventional superhero cinema you see just how conventional it really is and then all of these art house trappings just feel like an attempt to really just to dress up something a lot more a little tacky. T- simple yeah. i would say it's tacky ta- really. ta- yeah, like, when you look at the subplot with thomas wayne and how that comes together that plot that subplot is so ludicrous that I, mean, I really think it would have been laughed out of any other yeah, version of Batman. Can, th- in fact, there was a twist
0: similar to that in uh, in Batman v. Superman. And I think we can talk about this now. Because yeah, yeah, Batman v. On, v. Superman anyway, seen, yeah. Well, Joker as well. But I'm, okay, I'm gonna, well,
1: I mean, this is the last letter of the, of the episode, so, so fair warning, gonna, spoilers I'm and I'm Joker. I'm talking about spoilers and Joker.
0: Now, at the end of Batman v. Superman, it was revealed that uh, Batman and Superman, ha- uh, they their mothers shared a first name. Yeah. And the whole Martha thing. Why did you say the name Martha? Save Martha. That's my mother's name. That's my mother's name. Now we're buddies.
1: And it was such a huge coincidence and that the film relied on that coincidence. Mm. It wasn't like offhanded, like, oh, that's weird. It was the thing that stopped the fight and had the characters team up now. And it became a joke because Mm. even though I can see why that makes sense on paper, Mm. in actuality, you're looking at the most artificial and phony and (laughs) contrived thing you can and building a whole narrative around it. And so it became a joke. And I feel the same way about the plot point in Joker. The plot point in
0: Joker is uh, the Joker's. he lives with his mom, his mom is ailing. She's a little bit senile. Uh, she might not be mentally well. She's been writing a lot of letters to Thomas Wayne saying, you need to come after us. You need to come after your son, Thomas. <gasps> Joker's Batman's the, brother. The Joker might be Batman's half-brother. And, yeah. and they pursue that, and there's not a definitive answer. The, there's...
1: I think there is. I think there is, but it's, it's not told to the audience directly. It's, well, it's left yeah. a little ambiguous. The way it plays out is, Joker thinks Thomas Wayne is his dad. Mm. Thomas Wayne rejects him. Mm. and says your mother was crazy pants mm. and there was no love affair there was nothing she was just obsessed with me mm. uh, you were a child that she adopted and that's that then we find out through her files at Arkham that she was indeed thrown in Arkham against her will mm. by Thomas Wayne and her whole thing is he's Thomas Wayne's son they forced me to sign those adoption papers so that people wouldn't know he had an illegitimate child with mm. the help yeah. and, as, and that's very plausible that, especially we, in this world where we have already established that the mental health facilities in Gotham are lacking Mm. and very corrupt
0: and they're corrupt because of Batman's father now I realize
1: that that lends a little bit of ambiguity to this where we don't know for certain but then towards the end of the film after the Joker has killed his mom Mm. Uh, he looks at a picture of his mom, and he sees on the back that it was signed lovingly, mm. like, with, like, romantic affection from Thomas Wayne. Yeah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the Joker is his father, but what it does mean is that the only thing we know for a fact is that Thomas Wayne cannot be trusted, is a liar, mm. and will say things that are in his interest even if they hurt others. Right. We don't know have any reason to doubt his mom, and we have every reason to doubt Thomas Wayne. Exactly. So, so it's, the film basically tells you Joker is Batman's brother.
0: Yeah, the Joker is Batman's older brother. And yeah, I, I think because it had given us all of that style, people were able to sort of accept that late film reveal a little bit better. Yeah. But yeah, I think if that, that exact same plot point were brought up in a Schumacher-style film, yeah. where everything's really kind of shiny and broad and, and artificial... Yeah, it would have been laughed out of cinemas. Yeah, People would not have accepted that idea. And people aren't even talking about that. It's a little curious that this well, big, stupid idea that the Joker's Batman's brother is not being discussed.
1: I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this. And one thing I've discovered is that the people who think it's super ambiguous and absolutely believe, take Thomas Wayne at his word, uh-huh. tend to be dudes. <laughs> a lot but, of the women I've but, talked yeah, to believe, you do not think that that's really ambiguous believe the dude there yeah like because, you, you're, because you're,
0: a powerful man has never had a woman committed to cover his own secrets yeah
1: that's not, happened actually a lot not
0: ever you know there's a film that came out earlier this year called The Mountain with Jeff Goldblum which is about that exact thing
1: yeah that was actually a thing men just used to do yeah, Why? Well, my, because my, that was it. The guy could just take my, his wife yeah. to an asylum my, and say she's insane. My and mistress is,
0: quote, hysterical. Yeah. And they would give her a lobotomy, effectively executing
1: her, yeah. and the secrets would never get out. That's a thing. That was a thing that was really common. <laughs> and in a and movie I think, that is ostensibly yeah. about the, the, the failure of the mental health system, taking that as read makes sense. It makes sense. And I wish the
0: film had focused more on the mental health system. Yeah. And the doctors and the corruption therein, rather than this, who his brother might be. I don't care about that. I care more about him. And, you know, that that Batman might be his brother. And then, of course, it points to, well, Batman's not even in this universe. Thomas Wayne is nine. Or, excuse me, no, Bruce, Br- Bruce Wayne is nine. And his
1: origin, actually, is we at the to, end of the film. Yeah, we get to see his origin at the end of the film. Also, while we're talking about spoilers, can we talk mm. about how weird it is? Uh, the In almost every iteration of Batman... His parents are killed as they're coming out of a movie theater showing Zorro. Mm. Zorro being the first masked vigilante in the superhero mold. So it's kind of of in, the 21st century. It's kind least.
0: of in his mind as this happens. Yeah. So it makes sense that he a, a little more sense. Yeah, if if you can put sense to Batman.
1: I mean, there's a richer tradition of heroic vigilantes like Robin Hood, the Scarlet Pimpernel, right. but Zorro was the first pulp hero of his kind of the 20th century. Yeah. How weird is it that in Joker they went to see Zorro the Gay Blade, <laughs> which is a kind of a spoof of. Yeah. Zorro. It's an effeminate Zorro Mm. played by um, George Hamilton. Right. I've actually never seen it. I haven't seen it either. I I know how campy it is. I've Mm. seen bits, but um, that's weird. I realized that was the only Mm. Zorro film around at the time, Mm. but still weird, right?
0: I forgot where I saw this. I think it was a web comic where somebody uh, was having a conversation about Batman and how in the comic books, time doesn't really pass and the character remains the same age, Yeah, which means he's eternally the same age in the present, though, because yeah. time keeps on passing, but the character doesn't age.
1: Right, so his which origin his, keeps moving forward his, in time. His origin
0: keeps moving forward in time, which means when you are the same age that Batman is, they are going to have... Bruce Wayne will have had the exact same childhood experiences as you. And this was uh, written by somebody who was born in, like, the uh, like late 80s or yeah. mid-90s. So he imagined a world where Batman's parents were shot after seeing Pokemon, the first movie. Like... <laughs> Because that was his childhood experience, was going to see the Pokemon movie. That was really important to him when he was a child. It's weird, right? Can you imagine? Yeah. Bruce and Th- or Thomas and Martha Wayne taking young Bruce to see Pokemon and getting killed in the alleyway out back. And that's what creates Batman.
1: I'm increasingly convinced that Christopher Nolan had a smart idea or whoever came up mm. with the idea for Batman begins that they were watching a scary opera, something built more cl- timeless and classical. Yeah.
0: Well, the whole movie is kind of timeless, which yeah. is why wi- that's also what Tim Burton did. He's, yeah. He said his movie in something that could be the present day, but could also be 1920 or I guess post-depression. So 1930s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and he actually made that a very deliberate choice. He says, I'm going to make your Batman, but it's not going to take place in the present, it's going to be timeless. And they said, okay, we're going to put Prince movie in it. He stomped his foot and said, no, Prince? What are you doing? About, I love Prince, but what's timeless about Prince? Yeah, Prince is, like, right up to the minute. We can't do that, but you know, they, the, the studio got their way. And Still put, a
1: great soundtrack, damn it.
0: A great soundtrack, but what the fuck is Prince doing in a Batman <laughs> film? It makes no sense. It's, like, the most <laughs> surreal choice that
1: we just sort oh, of yeah. accepted in 1989. Well, we just sort of accept a lot of things. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to the, back to the letter. Um, all of that's fine, and I appreciate that if you see the Joker as sort of a novelty in the superhero genre. Mm-hmm. Um which again I don't think it is. I think you you're really apt to bring up Super, which was another sort of uh, deconstruction mm. of the superhero iconography through independent tropes yeah. and a much darker lens. Um Yeah, I don't think it's quite that novel. Um and I do think that the, by trying to have its cake and eat it too, by trying to be taken seriously as an art house film, but then finally segue very tidily into a superhero universe, mm-hmm. the movie kind of torpedoes both interpretations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, I don't particularly care for it along those lines. However, once again, that was a really well written letter, and yeah, I, you don't—you're you, not wrong. Well, you brought, just, you brought
0: up a good point for us to think about yeah. because. Um, I had dismissed that argument uh, in my review because I think of its style. I think I was encouraged to think of it as a, su- a certain genre, and I wasn't mm. really taking it into consideration as a superhero riff, even though it's the Joker.
1: Yeah, especially like yeah. as it as it mm. as it uh, steamrolls into its ending, it just gets more and more comic booky. Um, yeah, I, I, it occurred to me, but I and again, I didn't want to deal with it too directly in my early reviews because of spoilers. But yeah, I just I don't quite think it works. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't hate Joker. I'm a little frustrated that it's as popular as it is, and other movies that tackle similar things better are being overlooked. And in some cases, when I try to recommend them on Twitter, people are like, pass. Doesn't yeah. have the Joker. And I'm like, okay, come on, pretend it's mm-hmm. about the Royal Flesh Gang. Something, you know? <laughs> like That what's, what's, That I find frustrating. But that's not really the movie's fault. I just like find it kind of shallow and... Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of
0: tepid. Yeah. You, you know Batman comics. Who's like a big bruiser villain character? Like, just a big strong man.
1: Oh.
0: Uh, like, that just hits with his fists. Solomon Grundy? Solomon Grundy. Let's say you were never really here as a Solomon Grundy origin story. Well, he's a bad guy, but... Well, Exactly. You were never really here. He's kind of well, No, I guess he's he is. Not, sort of, no, he's a hero. He's, he's a, a hero for guy. hire. He's a good yeah. guy. That's
1: that's not quite. He's right.
0: like a vil- vigilante character. A vigilante, yeah. tough. guy. Like a big tough guy vigilante. Just a, a Punisher type. The Punisher. Yeah, pretend he's the Punisher. He's a Punisher. Yeah,
1: you mentioned this before. Yeah. You're, it's not perfect, but it's about right. Yeah. It's close yeah. enough.
0: It's close. Uh, yeah, it, he's he's a recognizable genre figure. Is my point, in that, yeah. And you were never really here. But it's not at all about genre tropes or genre attitudes. Yeah, it's about depression because that's what that violence does.
1: The other thing about the popularity of the Joker is it means we're gonna anyone who has any sort of critique about the film will be forced to defend that critique until the end of time. Oh God, we can't just say I think I've said all needs to be said. Nope, oh. someone else got to bring something else.
0: I don't know. Thing, things kind of cool for a while. Like I, I wasn't so affected by uh, Avengers when it came out in 2012. Mm. It's like that's okay. It's, it's it's like a Saturday morning cartoon, and everyone says, like, "Yeah, isn't that great?" It's like, well, that's kind of a problem, right? It's not that complicated. No, I wanted it. Saturday morning cartoon.
1: I think it's a good Saturday morning cartoon it, movie.
0: It is the platonic ideal of a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, I think it, I that, think it did it, what it set that's out a, to do. a triumph unto itself. I just wanted something a little bit more nuanced and complex, and yeah, I wasn't enough. getting it. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people are now sort of coming around on it. It's like, okay, when it first came out, it's the best thing imaginable. And now people are putting it fifth or tenth on their list of their favorite mcu that's one of the
1: ones where the novelty really was important at the time Mm. because no one had done that giant superhero crossover movie Mm. and there are a lot of people still wondered is this going to work are they going to be able to get enough screen time for all these characters and actors that everyone who's a fan will feel Mm. satisfied and will then work as a story and i've seen ensemble films before it can work fine guys i I know just didn't work with superheroes yet yeah exactly but it hadn't been done with superheroes yet can it work and the fact that it did was so impressive my god the wind chimes are loud today
0: it's so loud hey you know what a cool day it's fine
1: I'll take it it's it's Um, getting
0: colder it feels like autumn finally around here
1: you're right it'll probably cool eventually but there are certain films that just stay in the discourse And they end up they, being very divisive. They, they, and the more you have to defend your position, mm-hmm. the more strident your position seems, yeah. even if you're not that passionate about yeah, it. Yeah. So I'm a little frustrated that Joker is getting all this credit for doing something very superficial, yeah, whereas man. films that are actually like about mental health and don't and don't stop where Joker stops, mm-hmm. Joker is like, and then they defunded mental health. And okay, and then what and, happened? And he, then things and then, were bad. And then he became a supervillain. It's like, like wait, what? That's, that's not a complex <laughs> conversation about mental health. There's so many better films about that. So, that I find frustrating, but it's not, I don't really know if it's the movie's fault. I just find the movie no, bland and disappointing. I
0: think I'll, I'll need to wait a few years and watch it again, and maybe I'll, I'll sort of appreciate it a little bit better. I'll happily I'll watch it again at some pass, point. Yeah. I just,
1: yeah, you know, I'm not going to rush out and see it in theaters right now. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening to our letters episode. That's right. Uh, this has been We've Got Mail. Uh, thank you very much for listening and joining us and being awesome. Um, Where can they find you online, William? I'm at Twitter. I'm at William Bibbiani. And
0: <laughs> we're at Critic Acclaim. We're at Critic Acclaim. I'm at Whitney Seibold. I am still selling my radio show. Yay! Uh, it's called The Tenth Muse. It is about a time-traveling lesbian bar and a talking crab. Well, those are things in it. It's, it's about other character, human characters as well. But,, uh, yeah, uh, if you can contact me via whatever social media you have, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on the Facebook. Evil, evil Facebook. Ugh. I'm on it, my goodness.
1: I know, I'm uh, frustrated c- too. You know,
0: contact me, you can pay me via PayPal or Venmo, and I can email you a copy, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's 30 minutes long, and uh, it's got a full cast, music, sound effects, the whole schmear.
1: And uh, don't forget, you can write into We've Got Mail, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and if you are so inclined, if you are not already a Patreon subscriber, thank you to everyone who is, uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash criticacclaim, and uh, for... we have a variety of different tiers Uh, for one dollar a month you get to vote for future episodes Uh, for five dollars a month and up all of those tiers you get bonus podcasts Mm -hmm. that are just for our Patreon subscribers we've made them exclusively for you they're about every Best Picture nominee ever every Star Trek episode ever TV movies and miniseries commentary tracks we do Google Hangouts the whole nine yards Mm. Um, and uh, yeah we just want to give a special thank you to everyone who already subscribes and if you can cool Uh, if you can't afford to contribute Leave us a review, uh, link to us if you can. Just tell people we're out there. Maybe you'll 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 spread the word, spread the good <laughs> news about critically acclaimed. Um, and I guess that's about it. So thank you everybody for listening. Sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney.